Welcome to the Way Podcast on FM 91.7 WHUS at the top of the hour. I'm your host, Bill Trefeski, and today we'll be talking about autism with Aiden Allman and Jessica likewise. Autism affects 3.5 million Americans and roughly one out of 54 USA citizens. Now, can you guys introduce yourself, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and why you're knowledgeable about this topic? Sure. So uh, my name is Aiden Allman Cooper. Um, I am autistic, and I also work in the field of educational advocacy consulting, uh, especially I work a lot with uh, children with autism. And it really started for me how I got into this particular uh, career was I really was passionate about allowing people to reach their full potential. And unfortunately, uh, people within schools a lot of times don't necessarily receive the proper educational programming that they could that they need. And that actually happened with me. So uh, for me, it was really, you know, I formed my own business. I graduated high school early. And since then, I've been working closely with uh, case managers, parents, students themselves, by sometimes tutor students. And I, I, I really work hard to ensure that kids are receiving the proper educational programming. So it's definitely been a fun journey. And I, I absolutely uh, have been loving it. All right. And how about you, Jessica? Hey, Bill, thanks so much for having me on here today. So I am, I can't believe I'm going to say this. It makes me feel super old, but next <laughs> month will actually be 13 years that I've been working with children with autism. So I started working with kids when I was in college. It was 2008. Uh, the recession had just happened. And all of a sudden, we're in this autism epidemic. The numbers of kids of autism were on the rise. And I knew that I wanted to help and dedicate my life to working with kids with autism. And I've never looked back. I love what I do. You know, so many people, they spend their entire life trying to find their purpose. But for me, my purpose for the last 13 years has been working with kids with autism. And my purpose for the next 13 years will continue to be to make their lives better. Congratulations with that. I'm glad you found that. Yeah, appreciate it. Since the year 2000. Autism has actually increased 119.4%. To get a better understanding, what is autism in simple terms? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So when you, you have this idea of what autism is, and it is this like neurobiological disorder that creates impairments in social communication, and you know, I could read you the DSM definition, it's memorized. Practically, though, autism is a spectrum disorder. So what that actually means is that autism has things in common, but there's many, many forms of autism. And autism is developmental disorder, which means that the way autism manifests changes over a person's lifetime. So there are three things that all people with autism have in common to some degree, but those de degrees can vary a lot. And that's People with autism have issues initially as a child in communication. That doesn't mean just not talking. It means completely not communicating, not making eye contact, not pointing, really showing very little interest in what's called visual regard or joint attention, which is sharing enjoyment with other people. You know, that does, kids tend to often grow out of that, the communication impairments. But initially, there's an issue with communication. There is always some sort of social impairments when you're talking about with people with autism. Those impairments do change over lifetimes, but they do stay there. And then the third thing is this big fancy word called stereotypy. And that's kind of the idea, the colloquial term of stimming. Those are things where people that are autistic tend to 
um, perseverate on one topic. They tend to be very rule-oriented. They might hand flap, have repetitive motor movements, either be hypersensitive or undersensitive to stimulus such as sounds, maybe liking to look at lights from the corner of their eye. You know, what that looks like definitely varies for every person. Again, it's a spectrum disorder. It's a set of neurological differences. And each each person can have a different neurological difference. But there's a difference in the way that an autistic person and a neurotypical person processes information in relation to the environment. So that is really what encompasses what autism is. But, you know, it's so much more than just this definition and so much more than a diagnostic manual. It really, there's a, a way of looking at the world and a way of interacting with the world that's different. And that's really been what our purpose is of really trying to help shed light and share what autism is from this perspective of people living with autism. You know, I think that for me as a professional, I can memorize all the definitions in the world. But truly someone who's autistic like Aiden, he can really convey at a much deeper level what it feels like to be autistic and what autism really is beyond the definition. Got it. Yeah, you have to remember, no matter how far along the scale you are, you're still a person. Now, and actually, I like what you said about the tics these people tend to have, because I read a story where this lady likes to wave her arms around whenever she gets the urge to, and she would like to go to concerts. And whenever the music would play, she'd wave her arms around and everyone around her would start thinking, oh, man, look at this chick. She's vibing. She's enjoying it. <laughs> so I thought that was a funny story. But Aiden, before you mentioned something about it's being hard to find a job with autism, I have a stat that says 35% of autistic people haven't had jobs post high school education. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. You know what? So that's such a great question because I think that unfortunately, a lot of employers are not hiring people with autism because they see, you know, the way that someone may present themselves. So if let's say you have somebody uh, in front of you that's applying for a job, let's say even at a grocery store or as a cashier or whatever it may be, they might see them stim, they might see them, you know, they might like to wring their hands or they might do something that's unexpected to them they find that to be something that's a liability. And they say, you know what, if customers are coming in, they're going to look at that, they're going to be like, you know, what the heck's going on? This is weird and everything. And they're afraid that they're going to lose business. They're also afraid that, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, people with autism have a very hard time with interviews. They ask them questions and they might go on and on, or they might talk about uh, different interests that they might, you know, launch into a discussion about Star Trek or something, some idiosyncratic interests that might not be really uh, appropriate for the particular interview. And so there's, a, there's the cards are really stacked up against people with autism when it comes to employment for so many reasons. And that statistic that you had is absolutely accurate because of the fact that a lot of times there are, and it, like it, it, like I'll say, it does depend on where you are on the spectrum. So in my particular case, I had some issues with finding employment because of the fact that there were some things based on like job descriptions that I might have had more difficulty to do. And I think that they wanted to hire somebody that had more of that. But I never really had that flat out refusal because in my particular situation, um, I don't have a, a, a stimming uh, uh, thing that I do. I don't have any of the factors that I kind of listed. I, I am able to answer questions. I am able to 
go through an interview without, you know, really having a, making the other person feel like they're, you know, having a hard time with, but that doesn't say that that doesn't happen. I mean, while there are people like me that haven't necessarily had significant issues with finding employment, there are tens of thousands of people with autism that every day are denied and denied and denied employment. And, you know, and that's even discussed in our book. And I'm so glad that you mentioned this because it's even discussed in our book. This is autism. Uh, There was one particular story of a man who, you know, he has a degree in special education and he talked about how, you know, he's working as a direct support professional and he's not earning all that much money. And, you know, he says that he wished he could be doing more. And I think that there's so many roadblocks that we have against autistic people for, um, it's due to, I think, an ableist culture that we have uh, in the United States. And I also think it's due to the fact that there's not enough training and resources to go around. And so while I, I know this for myself personally, but as a, some as someone who has worked as a consultant and I regularly work with schools and everything like that, I can tell you that it's very, very, very hard for a lot of people to transition from, let's say, from being a, coming a high school graduate to either going to college or just going to the workforce. There's a very hard transition aspect due to a lack of training, resources, whatever it may be. So I'd say that on either end, I think that we really need to increase our resources, increase the support services, and really kind of change the dynamic that we have and the narrative that we have for autistic people that it's going to be a liability if they flap or if they their hands or if they you know say certain things or whatever they consider that to be a liability. I and I think that the book that that Jess and I uh, compiled and uh, I, I think that could possibly push the narrative a little bit, but it's a struggle and it's something to really uh, definitely look into. Oh yeah. By the way, quickly, what's the name of your book again? Yeah. So the book is called This is Autism. It was just released today and we're really wanting it to become a bestseller. And we're also really wanting people to really buy it because there's so many advantages to this book. And what I will say is, is that it's great. What's great about the book is, is that it answers a lot of unanswered questions. A lot of the times we don't really know what it's like to, uh, for somebody to live with autism. And there's not a lot of reading materials out there or people that are, you know, having to share their stories, but this book shares these stories and kind of answers some of the questions that parents or case managers or psychologists, whatever, whoever you may be, it's important. And like you said, the, the, how autism has skyrocketed, this is good for anyone, any community member, anyone, because autism is going to be a part of people's lives. There's going to be the person that you might see at the grocery store working, or you might see, you know, a coworker or your friend, a child, whatever it may be. Having this book will be able to almost serve as a manual as to the potential that can be created through the life experiences, through, through reading the life experiences, through understanding more about uh, what it's like to live with autism. And it kind of serves as that type of manual. So that's why I personally am so passionate about this book, because it's something that I think would be unbelievable, unbelievably invaluable to people all across the board. All right. Um, bring it back to finding a job. I read some people want stronger networks for jobs, coaches, rehabilitation programs, and some just want better education programs. Pratt and Whitney mm-hmm. has launched a hiring initiative uh, for people with autism. How um how does this look like in practice? 
Yeah, so I, I definitely want to uh, answer that. And then I, I think Jess would be a great person to also answer that because I think that she is really great with the connections. She's like the connection guru because, you know, she's she's got a large following and she's really good with kind of the business practices. But um, it, it, how I've seen some company initiatives, like I have seen uh, company, I've worked with companies before. I've represented, uh, I, I once actually represented uh, a a uh, handicapped, uh, basketball team for within a company that they were trying to gain employment for. And what I've seen is, is that I think it's a really great initiative. I mean, um, if you go, to, a lot of companies that have been doing this have been, uh, Goodwill, uh, Wawa, some aspects of Home Depot shop, right? Stop and shop. That's absolutely unbelievable because it's, this is re- revolutionary. We were in a society at one point where there was Willowbrook, where there were kids that would be considered uh, really, you know, not not useful to society. And even if you can't work, there's this expectation that we have that there needs to be this nine to five uh, work week. And I, I don't think that that's necessary for every single person, especially for people that have autism, because sometimes, you know, getting up each day can be really challenging. So I think having these job programs that are implemented can be done in a really great way. I I have heard some stories of certain things not always going the best way, but I really consider that to be outliers in all honesty, because there really has been a really great response to these initiatives. And I think that it should absolutely be increased so that we can really, you know, bring them out from the shadows and to really allow people to have uh, different types of jobs. I don't consider it to necessarily be an accommodation or a modification. I consider that to be a human need. I consider that to be something that really should just be, you know, it's just one of those things that you do. And that hasn't been the culture. And I, I, I want us to get back into this culture of, you know, being kind and really, you know, helping each other out. And I think that it it doesn't necessarily, you know, you're not, you don't have to be asking for the moon to uh, get more resources for people with autism. So that would be my take on that. Yeah. All right. Uh, You brought up Stop and Shop. I used to work there actually. And one of my coworkers, great dude, was uh, in a car crash and he's on record as the longest coma in Connecticut. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he um he told me while he was in it, he had a dream he was a pro football player and it was along that lines, but he um things about comas, uh, once you ban them long enough, you tend to get brain damage as a side effect. Right. And Stop and Shop was very acceptable with them, very reasonable and offered him a good opportunity. Now, one of the problems with one of the downsides with these services or being a coach or helping these people find jobs is they cost the uh, economy $236 to $262 billion annually and cost an extra $8,600 a year to educate these kids. Right. How, um, now, I'd say human value over price value. Yeah, that's such a really great point. And that's something that Jess and I might have different opinions on because those types of issues are things that um, – that we might, uh, you know, waver, uh, between. Uh, but what I will say for me specifically is, is, is that, um, of course I absolutely agree that human, I, I value people and the happiness and the well being of people more so than the economy. That's 
become controversial. That used to be, I think, a dominant paradigm within society, but that has been controversial and that has been contested. That, yes, that, that, that is a lot of money, but the way in which we are operating with society and the budgets and everything like that, there is so much waste that is going on in this country right now. And it's unbelievable. I mean, the, you know, and th- this might be a little controversial and, you know, I, I don't want to get, you know, death threats or written in anything like that. But um, I really believe that there is a way to fund a lot more than we really anticipate if we were to really restructure things differently. So I'll give an example. Um, I really believe that if we were to, I, I, I believe in the military. I am absolutely, you know, I, I'm a very big fan of veterans. I think that it, they're, they do an unbelievable job for this country. But I do believe that there is an exorbitant amount of money that's going into uh, the Department of Defense and uh, other initiatives. I don't consider that to be waste. I consider that to be something that I just think is very excessive. And I think that they, they do unbelievable things. I also want, by the way, I want more funding for you know, veteran affairs, that type of thing. But I also really believe that there are some things that we're doing within society that's absolutely exorbitant. So I believe in that the ability to socialize medicine. I believe that healthcare is a human right and that we can't, we're, we're capitalizing. And I won't get too much into this, but what I will say is, is, is that there are ways to solve these types of problems without breaking the bank. And it sounds illogical. It sounds, you know, not plausible, but if we were to really restructure, really work on ensuring that certain things were transferred as well as, you know, the percentage of uh, money that we spend on particular items, I believe that we can get to a point in which there are, the economy would be a little bit better. And so that's really my two cents onto it. But I think that, um, as of right now, I think that we need 100% more funding for special needs uh, students and uh, families. And to the people that say that, well, you know, I'll talk no action. That sounds good. How are you going to do it? That would be on the legislative le- legislative level where we would really be able to restructure kind of how we spend uh, our, our money. So that would be my take on that. I want to move into the history in one second, but I also want to throw this stat out. That Medicare costs for children with ASD autism uh, costs uh, roughly 4.1 to 6.2 times greater than the average. So in summary, would you be supportive of Medicare for all? I would 100 percent embrace Medicare for all, and I would be absolutely 100 uh, percent be willing and would love that. However, what I will say is, is that I am like I agree with uh Vice President Biden in the area of he would like that type of uh, plan to uh, occur, but it would be very, very, very hard to possibly uh, do that at this current moment of time, especially with the coronavirus. And there's still a lot of states are seething. In fact, uh, Governor Murphy of New Jersey today uh, was just approved by the Supreme Court to uh, get a loan of $10 billion to offset costs within New Jersey. And so um, I believe strongly that healthcare is a human right, and I believe that co-pays and lots of things really need to go away. And we absolutely can socialize medicine if we restructure things differently. I just don't think that we can rush into that because I think yeah, that can create an economic uh, 
collapse. I believe that what we do is it, it's not, it doesn't have to be even 10 years. It can just be a gradual, it, it, it's a slow thing as we move on from 2020 to 2021, as things become normal. I think that we keep doing what we're doing, but we start at, at the legislative level, we start changing certain things so that we're able to get to that point of socialized medicine. And uh, President Carter had that uh, similar belief where I love the idea of Medicare for all, but it might be hard to do that uh, right then and there. I mean, that 1970s oil crisis, and now we're in the coronavirus as well as other, we're in a recession now. So that's something that I would love to do, but I think it would be very hard, but I would do whatever it takes. If I was, let's say, in politics or I was in Congress, which I, is something I would absolutely want to do, by the way, I would I would do whatever it takes to get to go through that slow process. Yeah. Nice. Well, I hope you run. And if you do, I hope you win. Well, thank you. That's just, that's really sweet. <laughs> that's my goal, you know. <laughs> there you go. Now, um, I remember some horror stories from high school, but it's been a while. But what's the history of the treatment of autism? So I think that so. Bill, I think that's such a great question of, you know, what is the history of the treatment of people with autism? And I think that Jess also knows this uh, on a historical level because Jess really was able to really know a lot about uh, the, the, the history because she was w seriously within uh, that period of time in which she was part of the autism recovery movement. And so she's under, she's knows a lot about, you know, different levels and stages of, you know, treatment uh, of uh, people with autism. But in my uh, experience, there's two experiences for me, which is actually kind of really cool. And that is that it's from um, me, it, it, for, for, from my perspective, somebody with autism, uh, you know, and I, I, did, I never talked about this. I, this is the very first time I talked about this, where I mentioned my story within the uh, book. And I spoke about my story for the very first time. And unfortunately, my story was very unfortunate. It was very upsetting. Um, I was the gay, autistic, you know, physically disabled kid that really wasn't useful according to the standards within my public school. I was really hurt. I was um, treated in a very disrespectful way. My educational programming standards were not met. And ultimately, I really couldn't take it. I was able to get out. I transitioned into an alternative school. I'm a very big believer in public schools, by the way, that I can tell you. But I do believe that a ton of autistic kids, as well as people with mental health issues like bipolar, depression, uh, anxiety, that type of thing, are seriously uh, being mistreated. And so in my experience, unfortunately, the history for me uh, did not go very well. And unfortunately, I will have to say that most of my cases that I receive uh, are people that are complaining about, you know, their their children are being mistreated or that there's a problem. And uh, there's many good things that are happening. There are there are some bad apples within school districts where you have people not doing the right thing. It, it's amazing to me how no matter where I go in New Jersey, where it's North, South, Central, well, Central is disputed, but it's it, what I will say is, is that it's amazing to me how um, every single school district will always say that they're fine and that their programming is correct and that there's no issue and that they should pretty much shut up basically about it. And it, it just, it really amazes me how 
there's almost this denial factor of, you know, not wanting to really recognize, you know, hey, we did screw up or yeah, there was an issue or anything like that. There's always a blame. There's always this, it's not our fault. It might be your fault. It might be somebody else's fault. There's never that accountability. So there's really, in my experience, you know, and I won't generalize from the, uh, for, from my experience, but I absolutely feel I can generalize uh, in the state of New Jersey, some of the treatment of people with autism. In some school districts, in a lot of school districts, I should say, they're treated in a really unbelievably great way. And there's a lot of great treatments. There's, uh, well, I shouldn't say treatments. There's a lot of great support services. There's ABA, early intervention, that type of thing. But there's countless, and that's I, that part of me really wishes I don't have this job as a consultant, uh, that I don't have an office space for me to meet with clients. I want to lose my job in a way because, you know, the stories that I hear are, you know, gut-wrenching, hearing that my child was excluded from graduation or he was being bullied, the school district didn't do it. So unfortunately, there is a culture that is, uh, I, I think in some ways, anti-autistic and or anti-human needs is what I like to call it, because I think that the, 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 the needs that are presented with, from people with autism as well as people with uh, different types of special needs or mental health issues or even physical uh, conditions or whatever, they're viewed as uh, inconvenient, disabling, and really just, you know, a almost like a drain on certain societal factors. And I think that really in reality, I think that we need to really bring these people from the shadows. And there's this culture that we have that's very, you know, ableist in a lot of ways. And we see that all the time in life. And, you know, people don't necessarily want to talk about that, but it really is true. I want to really get people excited about the potential and the opportunities that people with special needs or people that uh, have conditions uh, can can bring to the table. And, it's, you know, it's not just like a very, very, very small population. There's a lot of people out there in life who might not just be autism, but there's a lot of people who have special needs. Instead of calling it special needs, I want to get to that point where we're able to call it human needs, where we're able to really express that the treatment for people is, you know, is standard. It doesn't have to be this big, complicated thing. And it does, it's not science fiction. It's not the land of make-believe. I believe it can happen. It just takes a lot of time and really just making sure that we're in these efforts of being able and willing to uh, kind of de deconstruct this ableist culture that I think we've created as a whole. So that would be my take on really the treatment of autism and whatnot. No. Thanks for sharing. I also want to make sure we had some software issues. Jessica, are you back? Yeah. Can you guys hear me? I can yep. hear you perfectly. All right. Perfect. Glad to hear you're back. <laughs> um, okay. So you mentioned some of your own stru struggles or things you found. Are there any stories among that book you have written that stands out or a little tad tidbit you want to share? Jess, you want to take this one? Because I'm sure that you've had some favorite ones that you've really enjoyed. Yeah, for me, it's it's not really one specific story for me that helps me to stand out. I think what it is for me is that even as a professional who worked with children with autism for, for like 12 years, 13 years, it'll be. For me, it was there was me and there was them. There was 
the, there was autistic people and then there was professionals, neurotypical people. And I worked with kids. And so when I worked with kids, they obviously are kids, right? They, they struggled. And like I talked about autism being a developmental condition. So the what autism looks like changes over a lifetime. I never really thought about what happened to the kids I grew up. You know, in theory, I knew the statistics that, you know, when I first started in my field, it was believed 40% of children could recover and with, from autism. And what that meant was that they could test in the average range and standardized test. They can go to school without significant supports. Um, and so for me, I kind of just thought, well, there's going to be kids that are like me one day, and then there's going to be kids that are that are not. And I never really gave a lot of thought as to like, well, who is this person going to be when they grow up? You know, it was very goal oriented for me because I'm a very goal and results oriented person. And so for me, it was always how many test scores can I, what, how can I get the test scores up? How can I, you know, get a person to have more skills? And that was very measured in, in a behavioral sense. So for me, when I was reading the stories in this book, and I was hearing about people's journeys. I think what I found most beautiful was not just one person's story in particular, but was the fact that I saw myself in every story. And I saw myself and my struggles and my beliefs in every person's journey. And then when I did that, it became more human to me. And I realized that really what makes us alike is a lot more than what makes us different. And so there, I'll never again be able to approach or I never again will choose to approach the world of there's autistic people and I'm the professional and, and they're different than I am. And my job is to help them or fix them. Because for me, when I, when I first started off on this journey, I looked at autism as a problem to solve. You know, I wanted to rid the world of autism. I wanted to recover children from autism. I wanted to cure autism. You know, that was my, what I thought was my noble why for starting my business. And I don't look at it the same way anymore. So it's not that there's this one story that stands out as much as there is this idea and belief that every person who reads this book whether you're autistic, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're black or white or gay or straight, when you read this book and you really search within yourself, you might see that the person's struggling at a different level than you. But the truth is, is that the inner core of this desire to fit in, this desire to be loved, this desire to be accepted and to feel like it's okay to be yourself, that exists among every story. And I think it's really beautiful because it allows us to take the stories from this book and apply the lessons to all areas of life. And I think for me, getting to participate and write these, so read the stories and participate in talking to the authors, it's made me a better person. And I know that anybody who reads this book is going to in turn be a better person, a loving, a more loving person, a more accepting person. And that if we all approach the world from a more accepting and loving place, it becomes more inclusive for all of us. And we get included in that, that it gets better for everybody. And so for me, that's really when I look back at the book and look at the journey of the stories, that's what I took away from it the most. All right. You said um, 40% of people recover, if I understood that right. Do people grow out of autism? So it's a really good question. Um, so one of my favorite quotes, I think, that answers that question is just because you experience a person's autism mildly doesn't believe they experience their autism mildly. So I started off in the field of 
autism as an ABA therapist. I still am an ABA therapist, but I use a little different approach today. And ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. And it was created based upon Skinner's work by Dr. Ivar Lobas. And what he said was that if you give children with autism 40 hours of intensive behavior treatments, you can reverse the effects of autism or you can recover children from autism. So what that meant is, like I said, at, at that time, autism was believed to be a very biological medical condition and, and a problem, right? So there was people would walk, they had the autism speak, still walk for the cures. Parents went to see what was called Dan doctors. It stood for defeat autism now. And there was this entire belief and shift in race to cure the world of autism. And so what they did is they did a study and they followed children who received intensive early intervention, 40 hours a week, uh, between the ages of really two to five. And they got 40 hours a week of intensive therapy. And what they found is that 40% of those children, by the time that they were five years old, had caught up in many areas to their peers. And then they did a follow-up study um, by Mc, McAkin was his name, a follow-up study. And they found that by 10, they never fell back behind. And so the belief was at that point that autism was very black and white. Either a person was not, was fine, was quote unquote normal, or they were autistic. And with that, that, you know, that R word that we don't really say anymore, but the people were believed to be really profoundly disabled. And there was no, there was no area in between. Either they were very autistic or they were totally normal for lack of a better word. And so there was this belief that if we couldn't see a person's autism, um, if they didn't make other people uncomfortable, if they could fit in and, and follow the rules that society set up, well, then they were no, they were fine. They weren't autistic anymore. And we know today that's not true. You know, can does someone's autism have to be a cause of their suffering? No. Does somebody's autism have to limit what they're capable of achieving? Of course not. Look at Aiden. He's 18 years old, started a business, has a book, very successful. How many adults wish they had the courage to do that? Never mind the skill to do that. So, you know, autism doesn't have to be a disability. It's a, it, it can potentially be a different ability. For some children, it can be, or adults, it can be very limiting. But for some people, it just makes them different. It makes them who they are. A person doesn't outgrow autism. Sometimes a person learns how to fit into society to the point that their autism is no longer recognizable by other people. But that doesn't make it them less autistic, and it doesn't make that easier for them. Denying yourself to appease other people is never easy. And it comes at a very profound cost. And I do wish as a society, we could accept and love people for who they are. And autistic people, like you talked about hand flapping, that they would feel free to do that. Because truly, how does it affect me? Why would it bother me? So could a person appear to be less autistic and fit in? Sure. Um, could I experience a person's autism mildly if they learn to deny themselves? Yes, that's absolutely possible. Will they experience their autism mildly in that process? No, they won't. And it may not be the best thing. So person autism changes over a person's lifespan. What it looks like changes. You know, people, just like a, a two-year-old, you know, turns into a teenager, turns into a young adult, turns into a, a grandparent. You know, the same thing holds true for autistic people. And so their skills and what autism looks like and how it affects their life will likely change over a lifetime. But a person will always be autistic that 
is truly autistic. 28% of autistic people have been asked to leave public spaces due to their behavior. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's hard because I've been in situations where um, I've seen people become children or adults have severe meltdowns where their behavior could potentially be very dangerous and very disruptive to other people. And as someone who's worked in the most extreme cases, it's very hard when you talk about someone who's autistic being thrown off of an airplane, you know, and, and what was the child doing? You know, were they just making some noise? Were they just hand flapping? But, you know, here's an example. So I went into a library one time and I was working with a boy and the boy was very loud, but he wasn't bothering anybody. And there was nobody in the library. And there was this very um, grouchy old librarian who actually was retiring that year. And I think she was counting the seconds down to her retirement. She found this child to be annoying to her. She said she couldn't concentrate on her work and she asked us to leave. And at that moment, right away, I got into the defense of the child and I called and I said, listen, this child has every right to be here. He's not presenting a danger to anybody. He's not, you know, he's not causing any sort of disruption. There wasn't even other people there. We, we literally were the only patrons in the room, in the children's room. And I said, if you, if you pursue this avenue of asking him to leave, I'm going to call the EDA. I'm going to call the news and I'm going to make an issue of this. You know, I've also worked in places where I was in Walmart and children were having a, a meltdown and just throwing over display cases, potentially um, running up to other people, pulling their hair on strangers and becoming, and it could become a very unsafe situation. So it's very hard. It, it's hard to just say, well, it, it, you know, it's wrong anytime someone who's autistic is thrown out of a public place because truly if someone is engaging in a dangerous or unsafe behavior where they could potentially be harming themselves or other people, and that happens um, not all the time, but it does happen in cases of autism where people are more severely affected by autism, you know, it's understandable. And the truth is, is autism is, spe is a spectrum. You have people like Aiden who are very capable and confident. And, you know, one of those people we talked about that you may not recognize as autism, that doesn't mean he's not autistic. And then there's people who are profoundly disabled, who um, their behavior is immediately apparent as being different and then potentially very easily could trigger an aggressive episode or a dangerous episode. So it, it happens more often than not. And I, I've been fortunate enough, like I said, to be in this field for 13 years. Only one time did I ever see a situation where someone was thrown out of a place where it was unwarranted. I have worked with kids in the community and, you know, I have worked with children whose behavior was unsafe in the community. And at that point, they required support from someone like myself, like a behaviorist who can be there, who's trained in, trained in de-escalation, who's trained in ways to um, keep them safe in the event that they did become aggressive or they did have a tantrum or become self-injurious. So it's just very hard to give a blanket answer of like, well, that's just horrible to hear. And I can't believe that statistic. I mean, I can believe it. I've seen it. I've dealt with it. I've helped with that. I think that what it speaks to is the importance of intervention, the importance of support, and really just the importance of teachers and therapists working in the community with people to make sure that you can teach people a way to interact in the community that's safe and productive for everybody. And I don't think a person's autism, you know, should limit their ability to interact with the environment, but that also may take a very proactive education approach of teachers and parents really working hard to make sure that a person does learn how to do that safely in the event that they are more severely affected by their autism. All right. From a biological perspective, Asperger's is caused from a mutation in 
neurologin 3 that impairs oxytocin. I'm not, I'm an engineer, not a science major, <laughs> but oxytocin signaling pathways and neurons of the brain reward system. That's the biological how it's created. But what is Asperger's and Down syndrome and similar disease? What's the difference between them? Yeah, so there. Um, so Asperger's is actually not even con- today a diagnosis anymore. It's no longer part of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. The autism was believed. Um, Asperger's was just like the name for high functioning autism, and they just no longer call it that. Now they call it autism level one, two, and three. You know, Down syndrome is a very specific genetic mutation. Um, autism is not a specific genetic mutation. There's likely a genetic component, but there's likely a different genetic component in almost every case of autism. You know, I talked about autism being a, a neurological difference that creates a certain set of traits, but there's no blood test for autism. You can test someone's blood and you can identify that they have Down syndrome because it's a single mutation disorder. Autism, you know, what might cause one person's autism, what mutation causes it? If you line up 10 people, they might have 10 different genetic mutations that result in a similar neurological difference in behavior. But it's all different for everybody. So, you know, in in terms of what it looks like, it's really a completely different disorder. So where people who are um, have Down syndrome, they have specific facial features that are a little bit different. Um, they have a low um, a cognitive level, IQ level, intelligence quotient. So they're considered to be learning disabled, whereas someone who's autistic could potentially be, but usually is not. Um, someone who is, is has Down syndrome generally does not have any sort of communication impairments. Someone who was autistic does. You know, someone who has Down syndrome generally does not have any sort of stereotypy or restricted interest or a repetitive behavior. So someone who's autistic does. So it's really kind of comparing apples to oranges. There, other than them both being umbrella differences in 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 you know, in really, Down syndrome is not considered a neurological disorder either. Whereas autism is considered a difference in neurology and how we process information. Whereas really Down syndrome is more of, of a difference in the, in the intelligence love. And I don't want to say intelligence levels. I don't like the way it's called. Um, that is what it's called, a difference in, in cognitive functioning or intelligence abilities. I don't think that's actually true. Um, but that's kind of how the world still perceives it in terms of what terms they're using. But they really truly are very, very different things that are, that are completely unrelated. They, they have really nothing to do with each other. Gotcha. How has autism treatment changed over the last 20 years? You know, so when autism first came out, the official cause um, of autism was actually identified as refrigerator moms. And it was believed that autism came about because, you know, kids with autism had a lack of social interaction and communication by moms that didn't love their children. And the official term, the official treatment for autism, the term was called a parentectomy. And children were forcibly removed from their homes with the belief that if they were taken from their evil, horrible mothers, that they would be completely fine and that everything would reverse and they would, and everyone, everything would be wonderful. So you're looking at a very, very dark history. You know, after that, they put people into mental institutions. They used psychotic drugs for people. They did electric shock therapy. Um, they did horrible things that people would go to jail for today, um, up until even the 70s. In the 80s, it started into the field of ABA that did become controversial in 
when ABA started, which is today the primarily way of helping kids with autism. When it first started, it was very different than what it looks like today. They did aversives using things like electric shock therapy or punishment procedures or shooting water in people's faces if they did things that, that we didn't want them to do. Today, it doesn't look like that at all. What ABA looks like today is, is really just a different education approach. In fact, if I were playing with a, a toddler doing ABA, you would very likely not know unless you're a trained professional, I was doing anything other than playing with a toddler. So the, autism has a very, very dark history. And there's a lot of misinformation. And there's a lot of animosity between autistic adults and professionals. And you could kind of see why, because, you know, a lot of the adults that are in their 50s, 60s, they, they went through or they potentially knew people or was in their lifetime where horrible things were done to autistic people. And it really is healing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey of healing. It's the journey we have to be on in order to fix that. You know, and for me, I'm one of the only professionals, in fact, as far as I know, I'm the only professional in the world who, who hires and employs and consults with autistic adults when I'm developing treatment outcomes for kids with autism. And I've never, I've, there are other books by autistics before that they put out. I've never ever seen in my lifetime, and I don't believe it exists anywhere in the world, a collaboration between a professional and autistic people. And that's what I'm trying to do is really change that dark history and heal it. I think in order to move forward, we all have to work together. You know, autistic adults have so much information to share, but the truth is there was no group of autistic adults. I mean, social media didn't exist and people lived spread apart and probably an autistic adult never met another autistic adult. And often autistic adults didn't even have a diagnosis because why would you as a parent get a diagnosis for your child when you knew that it implied that horrible things could potentially happen to them. You wouldn't. Who would? So, you know, for me, it's really this journey of healing is a journey that we're on. And I think part of that healing is to admit and recognize that autism has a dark history. Got it. You said um, uh, finding a diagnosis. According to The Guardian out in the UK, it said almost half of parents have to wait 18 months plus for a formal diagnosis. And 70% complained they weren't given adequate support. Why does it take so long for these parents to get a formal diagnosis? You know, only a developmental pediatrician or a developmental pediatric neurologist can give a diagnosis of autism. It's not easy to diagnose autism because, like I said, it's not a blood test. You know, you can't prick a child's finger in a physical and find out if they have autism. It is a very um, intensive screening procedure. There's multiple assessments done. It takes time. Um, oftentimes, also, parents see red flags at a, at a certain age, but they don't necessarily become um, real concerns until a child reaches a certain age. Let's say, for example, at 18 months old, a child's not talking, a parent might start seeking out a diagnosis of autism. But realistically, some kids start talking at two. So they might not get their diagnosis until they were three because of Three, it becomes like, okay, really, now we know it's really not just a difference and all kids talk at a different age. But the number one answer is there's just more kids that need assessments than there are professionals to help. And it got, it was worse. It was, it was worse. At one point it was two years, it was 18 months. It did get much better in the last two or three years there was significant improvement. It went down from on average of six, of a 12 months to 18 months in New Jersey, in New York, which does have better numbers because there's just more 
population density. But we did, we had those numbers that had gone down to about six months. And, and with COVID, it's back up. It's probably going to be worse than 18 months. I think 18 months now would, would even be um, a goal to get back to. So, but there, you know, there's a lot of variables as to why, but just the number one answer, more people need help than there are professionals to help. Got it. Makes sense. So focusing on mothers again, first, I want to say if a mother, if your mother's pregnant and she smokes marijuana or drinks alcohol, there's a 51% increase that child chance that that child will get autism. So I just like to say that, but also now I'm sure you've heard about this topic, but what about vaccines? What do you think about the anti-fax movement? You know, it's interesting. So I don't think vaccines across the board cause autism. I do believe that people that are artistic, especially children that are autism or I mean, as people grow up as well, but they tend to be have higher health issues and they tend to have certain genetic mutations, like, for example, an MTFHR gene mutation, which uh, makes it so kids cannot chelate metals or people can't chelate heavy metals. So I think that sometimes a person's genetic makeup who has autism, they can have are more prone to vaccine injury. Vaccine injury is a real thing. Vaccine injury is not debatable. I think vaccine injury is more common for people that are autistic because they already had a genetic disposition to to being their biology being set up that way. And I think that there would have been a trigger, whether or not it was a vaccine, whether or not it was going on vacation and drinking water that was contaminated with lead. It's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back for some people that is a vaccine. Vaccines don't across the board cause autism, but certainly I think environmental factors play a role on turning certain genetic mutations on and off. And that's the field in the study of epigenetics, which is the idea that we're all born with a certain genetic predisposition and our environment plays a large role into whether or not certain genes affect us and to what degree they affect us. And so I think that, you know, we can talk about vaccines, but the reality of it is, is that we live in a world that's way too polluted. I mean, our waters are polluted in New Jersey. The, a lot of children have lead poisoning because the truth is, is when the Revolutionary War was fought, there was a lot of lead ammunition that was buried in New Jersey. I personally had lead poisoning. I personally had to go through chelation to get rid of heavy metals. Um, certainly, I think that is playing a very large role in even just parents having lead poisoning and having children who are then born with too much metals in their body, the inability to chelate it, and then just that one last trigger potentially threw them over the edge and made them start having more symptoms of, of autism. But I don't think that you can say across the board vaccines cause autism, and I don't think that it's possible to say that there are no children in which a vaccine played a factor. All right. For the listeners, if you look at Flint, Michigan, I'm sure you've read this yourself, but the children out there drinking the water before they actually caught all the lead in the water, uh, autism rates skyrocketed. I'm not going to say the number because I don't remember what it is, but that was definitely a big factor for that community. Yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no doubt that heavy metal injury um, oftentimes causes autistic-like traits in children. And um, like I said, whether that is heavy metal injury from a vaccine or from water or from a food supply, you know, it's just, but the truth is, is that 
we need to clean up our environment because the autism, the number of, of kids and being born with autism every year continues to increase. It's increasing dramatically. I think you said 120% more autism. I mean, it's just crazy. The numbers aren't really one in 10,000 into one in 56. Like it's believed to be, it didn't really change that drastically, but there are still drastically increasing number of cases, dramatic increases and in differences. And I do think that we need to do something about it. And for me, what I would say, the first thing we need to do is just to clean up our world. We've destroyed and polluted our environment to a degree that it's not just, it's not just autism, but Alzheimer's, MS, uh, lupus, all sorts of autoimmune disorders. I think all of us are being affected in a negative way. Cancer is just, it was almost, you, you didn't know anyone who has cancer. Now they say one out of every two people will develop cancer in their lifetime. We, we just destroyed our planet. We destroyed our world. And I think that we have to, we have to clean it up or we're going to continue to see whether it's autism or another um, medical disorder, we're going to continue to see uh, these issues come up. Wow. That's brutal. Now I'm hearing a new thing of microplastic being another thing we have to look out for. So very yeah, that They said that they, I, there was a study that I was done and I don't remember the exact number, but it was even like microplastics. They found that in, it was over 70% of women with breast cancer. They found it in a woman's breast tissue. So okay. it's just in general. Uh, and the number is not 70%. I don't remember the number offhand. It was some, but it was over 70%. I remember that number stuck out to me a lot. Um, so it's just, we, we have to clean up the world. And I, I just, you know, whether it's just on a small part, like I'm sitting here and I'm drinking water from a, I have a bamboo straw as opposed to a plastic straw, whatever it is you do in your part of cleaning up the environment. But we really do as a society need to do a better job because if we don't take care of our environment, it's going to affect us all in one way or the other. Got it. All right. Let me ask, what are some of the strengths of autism? So I guess I, I really like to answer that because that's a re great topic that I'm really passionate about. And I apologize for that. Um, it, it's one of those things that uh, really is oftentimes people don't really want to hear because unfortunately there are cases in which you have, you know, sometimes you might have somebody that's very, very impacted where there are some people with autism that aren't able to walk, some that are nonverbal, some that are really uh, can't take care of themselves that really need round the clock care, uh, depending on where you lie uh, uh, on the spectrum. And it's very, very, very hard for a parent, a caregiver, uh, anyone to really hear, you know, look on the bright side or hear the strengths and everything because there's such a significant need that they might, you know, some people say that autism may be the very worst, worst thing that could have ever happened to myself or to my child or to really my family. And, you know, I don't have that outlook, but what I will say is, is that it's not something that I can really answer concretely because I'm not a mother, I'm not a father, I don't have, let's say, a family. But um, it, I, I acknowledge that it's hard to hear the strengths. But what I will say is, is that, and this is for really across all abilities uh, across the board, even to the ones that really unfortunately do need round-the-clock care and really do are very impacted. In every single person with autism, and I believe in, in this with every single person, there is always, no matter how significant need you may have needs that you may have there's always a strengths because people are built to have strengths and people are built to have weaknesses to say that somebody does not have strengths that nobody that somebody has no 
measurable or redeeming qualities is absolutely obscene. And I think that for, you know, even I'll, I'll start with like the extreme example of somebody that's, let's say, very, very, very impacted with autism. Um, sometimes they like even a smile or, or even showing a smile or even perhaps maybe uh, indicating with their body or, or expressing some way of enjoyment or whatever. I consider that to be a strength. They, they, nobody wants to hear that because it's like, oh, big deal, you know, but nobody really wants to hear about that. They just, they really want to focus on that. And, you know, I don't know how to answer that because, you know, I'm not in that particular position and I would really leave it up to, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. This is, autism is so complex and there's no good, bad, indifferent answer. I have certain perspectives. Other people on the autistic spectrum absolutely have disagreed with the things that I've said. I've, they've agreed with me. So it's really, you know, what you think and where you are and a lot of different factors and there's no uh, great answer. So on one end, you know, I could see that as being a strength where you're able to kind of have the kid that really has uh, a lot of need or whatever, the ability to smile or the ability to indicate preferences. I consider that to be a strength because it means that they have it, it, to me, at least, it's, it would suggest to me that, that the strength that they have is insight in their ability to recognize uh, their likes, dislikes. And a lot of people don't always know what – don't always have that, the insight. Sometimes, sometimes people really have a hard time understanding what hobbies or what you know they really are, finding who they really are. And sometimes people, you know, especially on the autism spectrum, they know right away, this is who I am. And uh, I consider that to be a strength. Now um, – Transitioning away from that kind of uh, extreme example of somebody that really uh, is in need, uh, in, in uh, has a lot of needs, there's a ton of strengths that I think people with autism uh, have. And of, of course, you know, there's a lot of areas of concern. We talked a, a lot about that before. We talked about, you know, communication and how that might sometimes be difficult, socialization and everything like that. Socialization for me is incredibly challenging. And uh, communication can sometimes be very difficult for me as well. But uh, the strengths that I think are offered that, that, that are seen in many people with autism, um, I think is the humanity. So we, we, we focus a lot on their reactions. There are reactions where it seems like they don't care. They, they, you know, they don't care about other people's feelings or everything like that. They may not show it externally. But let me tell you, some of the kindest people that you could ever meet sometimes are people with autism. The amount of passion and dedication that they have into when they see an injustice and when they really are seeing something that is very challenging, whether, whether somebody's being taken advantage of or whatever it may be, they come to their defense nine times out of 10 because people with autism have a different sense of humanity. They, and that's a really big strength because unfortunately people don't always have that. Um, the ability to really kind of recognize somebody in need is something that I've seen as well. And I think that some of the some of the kindest people you could ever meet are people with autism. And that's something that I think is a huge strength that is seen throughout the autistic community. Uh, you know, we can say that, yeah, there are some people within the autistic community that don't have that. There are some that are very angry and bitter and really um, resent the world and other people. But that's just one side of it. One common thing I've seen is this, and there's no way to generalize the entire community, but one thing I will say is, is that a common trait that has been seen, at least in my my perspective, is the level of kindness. And I, I also wanted to point out just a, another strength that people have, um, and that's perseveration. So 
very common uh, people with autism have kind of different interests. So you, you, maybe the kid, uh, everybody wants to play, let's say football or soccer or something like that. The kid wants to play Dungeons and Dragons, Minecraft. They want to sit on their bed all day and, you know, go on the computer or, any, or anything like that. They can do that for, you know, somebody that's neurotypical, they, they you know, neurotypical kid, you know, let's say a middle school kid, they, they could absolutely play, play Fortnite or whatever for hours and hours and hours. But for them, there is an ability to check out for some time for, and I'm not saying this for, for just video games or anything like that. For some aut- aut- autistic people and myself included, it's challenging to check. It's challenging to check back in. They sometimes are so engrossed and they are so passionate about certain things because they feel confident or they feel interested in it. They could go on and on and on and on. And I'll give a perfect example. I wouldn't say it's preservative because I am able to check back in, but I definitely say that an area of passion I have is uh, law, politics, uh, the education regulations, uh, educational law, uh, New Jersey codes, that type of thing. And I actually, you know, left my own devices. If I, let's say, didn't worry about, you know, social cues and etiquette and that type of thing, I could go on and on and on without needing a drink of water, without needing to say anything else. And, you know, I could just go on and on. And that's, you know, I, uh, perseverative. I think about it all the time. I think about the 2020 election. I think about all these things. It's always constant throughout my brain. And, um, you know, sometimes that you can miss out on the world. There are sometimes, you know, you, you, you become too engrossed. So let's say, for example, you know, you want to stay at home and work on your, uh, uh, video game or you want to build something or whatever it may be, you know, that's the trade-off of that is that you could have gone to a family gathering or social event. So there's trade-offs to that, but the strength that I think is seen in the preservative behavior and some of the interests is, is that they can do a ton of things positively to the world with this, uh, perseveration. And I'll, I'll, I'll give, uh, two examples for that. One is, is that, uh, and this is a contributor within, uh, the book, this is autism that was just released today. He talked about how he, he due to this uh, coronavirus uh, ish, uh, pandemic, he's been very, very, very uh, uh, really trying to ensure that people are donating plasma, that type of thing. And he said that, you know, that's become a perseveration. That is one of the most noble things that you can do, asking people to give blood, asking people to help another person in need, asking people to really be on the front lines and help uh, people cope with coronavirus and everything. That's noble. And that, and he says, yes, that's a perseveration. And that may very well be true of perseveration. And I do think that there is a need for balance and there is definitely a need to ensure that, you know, you, you check back in every once in a while. But honestly, I think pre- per, uh, perseverations are something that can be a very beautiful thing. Watching somebody just be so engrossed and determined and just, you know, keep at it or whatever is a really uh, I think it can be a beautiful thing. You know, it, it can get dysfunctional if they really like flat out refuse to check back in. And that's where sometimes other things may need to come into play where they get certain help for that. But, um, you, know, I, you know, one thing I will say, and this is something that I'm really working towards, um, I have very uh, low self-esteem and that's something that I'm really trying to build on. But one thing I will say is, is that um, I'm very perseverative with, you know, I, I, I will do, I'll go to the nth degree to ensure that a child's rights are, 
being implemented within a school. I, I, I go to the extreme. Other advocates will kind of, we'll, we'll do a great job. We'll do lots of great things. But for me, I go to the nth degree. And I consider that to be, I'm, I'm proud of that. I can, I, I'm happy. I consider that perseveration to be a strength. So yes, there, it, it is hard to talk about the strengths and it is hard to talk about you know those types of things because then parents or caregivers or people that work with autistic individuals that are very, very, very impacted, they say, what's good about it? But there's so many, there, if you really search deep down and reframe it in a different way, I think that you can always see strengths even the, in the most impacted people because I believe every single person uh, in life has strengths. It's just hard to hear. And, you know, maybe my, I would, my, my tune would be changed if I actually was a mother or something like that. But I have worked with kids that have been, uh, completely uh, nonverbal, or I have worked with uh, kids that need round the clock hair. And I can say in my case, as a professional, as a human, as a other, as a fellow person with autism, I see strengths inside of them. And it's hard to say, but I think that overall, I'd say kindness, perseveration, as well as a lot of other underlying strengths that make up autism is something that is beneficial. And let me tell you, a lot of people with uh, autism have really uh, benefited the world tremendously. There's speculation that uh, Thomas Edison may have been on the autistic spectrum. Albert Einstein definitely, uh, well, I shouldn't say definitely, there's significant uh, 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 reasoning to suggest he was autistic. And these people have changed the world. Autistics run the world, as in, I, as in, they are people that really, really, really are a part of our society that have really contributed to a lot of great things. And I really want that to be expressed and to really let people know you can do anything. You actually can do anything. Yes, you have autism. Yes, you have this disability. Yes, you have that. And yes, the cards are stacked up against you because there is an able society. And yes, there are certain things that can get in the way. And you may have obstacles and you may not be able to work the 40 hours or whatever that may be. It doesn't matter. You can still follow your dreams to an extent and you can still really conquer and do whatever you can. And I want people to get excited about it. I want people to really feel passionate about they can do anything. And I want the world and I want the narrative to shift on disabilities on people with disabilities. So I would definitely say that those would be some of the strengths you would see uh, within autism. Got it. All right. I think I want to start to wrap up this podcast, but before I do that, let me ask, actually quickly, what's the name of your book again? So it's called This is Autism, and it's something that you know Jess and I are both really excited about. So Jess and I were both compilers. We kind of, you know, I, I personally, I edited it. Jess uh, did a ton of administrative, PR, lots of really great things with it. And uh, in addition, for me personally being a compiler, I also uh, wrote a chapter because uh, while Jess is, does not identify as autistic, uh, I do. I've had autism uh, for my entire life, and I think I always will. And uh, so I wrote a chapter. And uh, you can actually you can go to Amazon.com. We're trying to really get people to purchase this because it's fun. It's exciting. As I mentioned before, there's a ton of benefits with this particular book. But what's really great is is that it's also really easy to obtain. So all you have to do is you go to Amazon.com. You can type in my name. We, we want to get to the point where you can just type in the book title, but because it was just published, it's kind of at the end of the barrel. 
So all you can do, you can type in Jessica likewise, you can type in her full name, you can type in my name, you can type in this is autism and if you want to scroll down. But the easiest way as of right now to find the book is you just go to Amazon, you type in my full name, which is Ian Alman Cooper, you type in Jess's full name, and then you'll be able to get it. And it's a really great thing to do. Get, purchasing that book is something that can really be incredibly beneficial for you. Got it. And to make it even easier for those listening, go to podcasttheway.com find this episode and in the comment, well, in the description of the podcast, I'll put a link for that book. So you can just click and go right there. Now, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. No problem. And to wrap it up, what's something you both in short terms, what's the, what's something you want to emphasize something you think didn't get across clearly or the one main message you want the audience to leave with? Jess, you want to take this one first? Uh, sure. Thank you. You know, for me, what I just want people to know is that the autistic community has this powerful voice and these incredible stories and so much wisdom and insight to share. And that I think it's important as a parent, you work with professionals, but I think it's not enough that you rely on professionals. I think you also need to listen to people who've been through and who have achieved what you're trying to do for your child and what they're going through. All right. And how about you, uh, Aiden? Yeah. Yeah. So um, for me, I said this before, but I, I really want to say this again, because this is something that I really want to emphasize. I want us as we enter into the, you know, the, 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 the 20s as, you know, 2020 wraps up and we go into 2021. 20, uh, historically, the 20s have not been very great for uh, uh, a lot of people. There's, you know, there was uh, issues uh, all throughout, but I really want their, I want people to get excited. I want people to really get back to a more kinder, gentler type of thing. And that doesn't have to mean that that's at the cost of the economy. That doesn't have to mean that's at the cost of your values or your life. I want people to have the ability to extend a helping hand. And we see that every day. Don't get me wrong. We see that every single day. It's beautiful. And it's one of the greatest things that can happen. But I really want that to be a, a complete wave. I want to see that sweep this nation as we begin to, and we're starting, we're seeing it by the way, we, we, and we've seen uh, minorities that have just been elected into uh, Congress, into uh, the Senate. We've also seen, you know, the expectations or the things that were used to be acceptable. We're now, you know, smashing that glass ceiling and we're saying, you know, that's not acceptable and we're getting more people uh, involved. I want there to be a complete sweep of the ability of having people being more kind. So that would be the one message that I would definitely want to say for people with and without autism. Absolutely. Got it. Well, thanks for coming out. Thanks for coming on the show. And for the listeners, this is the way podcast FM 91.7 WHUS top of the hour. And be sure to find the podcast at podcasttheway.com. And yeah, deuces. Thank you, Bill. Thanks so much, Bill, for having us.